Hello, welcome to episode number nine of the Joe DeVoe Show. I'm your host, Joanna DeVoe, but you can call me Joe, and I am here to uplift and support my fellow creatives, lovable weirdos, and makers of magic. And today I have two very, very, very interesting special guests to help me do that, Damien and Lori Eccles a power duo who together have lived through one of the most harrowing life experiences that I've ever heard of. Damien was in prison for many years, almost a decade of that, spent in solitary confinement for a heinous crime he did not commit. And he and Lori fell in love while he was in prison, and they both credit magic for saving their lives. So you can probably tell just from that brief description that this is going to be a unique, special interview, and it is. I'm so excited to finally get to share this with you. We're going to talk about their life experience. We're going to talk about the new book that they co-wrote together, Ritual, an Essential Grimoire which is basically a spell book of rituals and meditations for protection, joy, love, luck, prosperity, creativity, spiritual insight, and all that good stuff presented in plain, accessible language that anyone can use. And I think that's the thing I appreciate the most about their writing is it's so accessible. There's nothing about it that is pretentious or out of reach. And the same can be said for their personality. These are very warm people. And I had such a wonderful time talking to them. And I've been waiting for many weeks to share this with you. So this is it. This is the whole intro. I'm just going to hop right into it because I can't wait for you to listen to this. You might want to get yourself a cup of tea or coffee or wine and make yourself comfortable. Maybe buckle up because this is going to be a whole experience. Hi, Lori and Damien. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's so interesting and fun to have you both here together because you two are a very unique team. We are at that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think we kind of had to learn to be just because, I mean, in a lot of ways, like it's not an exaggeration to say that my life depended on us being able to work together to figure out the solution to various problems. If not for doing that, I would have died. Honestly, I don't even know where to start with you, Damien. I mean, you really have been through hell on earth. And Lori volunteered to join you in this. She did not have, she did not have to, she chose to. So maybe you two can start this off and I'll just follow your lead. Can you tell people a little bit about who you are and what brought you to the point that you're at in your life now? Just briefly, is that a, is that a brief thing? (laughs) I guess just to start with for myself, most people, probably people that are aware of me. Well, now, you know, more and more people are connecting my name whenever they hear it to magic, to books on magic, to YouTube videos on magic, but that wasn't always the case. 
back in the 90s, most people, if they heard my name, if they knew who I was, would have automatically thought, oh, that's that guy on death row, or that's that guy from the Paradise Lost documentaries, or that's the guy from West of Memphis, whatever it is. Uh, Essentially, what it came down to was during the, like the height of the satanic panic period in the very early 90s, I ended up being sentenced to death in the state of Arkansas, where I was accused of killing three children as part of a human sacrifice. During that time period, a whole bunch of other people all across the country ended up being sent to prison. Some of them are still in there to this day for things that we now know in a lot of cases never even happened, crimes that were never even committed. But they were, the state was intent on putting me to death for this. I finally got out in 2011 due to DNA testing. They were able to do DNA testing then that they couldn't do back whenever I was arrested. And they found that the DNA at the crime scene did not match me or the other two men they had convicted, that instead it matched someone else. And I was freed. We're still fighting to have me completely and absolutely exonerated. We're going to court again on June 23rd to ask that even more, uh, even newer DNA testing be done to hopefully pinpoint exactly whose DNA it is at the crime scene and bring closure to this once and for all. You want to pick it up from there? (laughs) Yeah. I just want to say too, to the listeners that you definitely should go follow Damien on Instagram or Twitter and amplify this story and put pressure Oh, thank Thank you. you. Yes, yes, because that is the only thing that saved my life. If not for that, you know, really, we think of these people like attorney generals and prosecutors and judges as somehow having these positions because they're moral, upstanding people. But the truth of the matter is they're just politicians, just like senators and congressmen. The only thing they care about is winning the next election and what public opinion of the job they're doing is. Yeah. The more people that are paying attention to this case, the more likely it is that we'll finally see some sort of closure or justice done. Do you have a sense of not just being a personal experience, this not just being a personal experience, but being in service to other people who are still stuck in the system or changing the way things are done? I I think in a roundabout way, it absolutely is, because even though, you know, I'm I'm fighting for myself, we're fighting for me, this is still going to have ramifications and repercussions throughout the entire judicial system. You know, this will shed light on how some of these cases are handled, how some of these cases are mishandled, the prosecutorial misconduct that's involved in a lot of them. And, and how some of these cases, they do this, they've done this to other people other than me to make the public feel that they have a sense of closure on these cases. Uh, you know, most people were not fortunate enough to have cameras in the courtroom like I was. So a lot of people have been put to death. Hopefully what this will do is stop at least a few of those from happening in the future. Yeah. I guess I asked because it seems with Lori stepping in, and I definitely want to hear from you, Lori, about that, but also some huge celebrities, Eddie Vedder and Peter Jackson, like these people used their reputation to amplify your case and draw attention to it. And it just seems very magical to me. I mean, I just can't believe you're out. I have to say, it's just so incredible because 
that accusation is one that's very loaded. That's like one of the worst crimes you could possibly commit. And that you're a free person right now is outrageously incredible to me and so awesome. Whenever you hear some of these things, whenever people are accused of stuff like that, well, first off, whenever you see on TV that someone's been arrested, it's our natural inclination to think, well, there must be some proof, there must be some evidence or they wouldn't have arrested this person. When a lot of times that is just not true at all. But yeah, it is an incredibly loaded thing. And Lori was the one that was responsible for bringing in most of the the bigger named people that were involved in the case. You want to talk about that? Sure. First of all, just a little background on me and how how I got involved. I was living in New York City and I was just working my dream job. I was a landscape architect working to design estates for like the 1%, basically. So, Mm. I mean... It was just like a, I mean, I would go to Sotheby's and pick out whatever I wanted. And I mean, it was so fun. And my life in New York was really fun. I had a lot of good friends and it was just, it was, you know, it was the early nineties, mid nineties. It was a great time to be in the city. But then I happened upon this film, Paradise Lost. It was the first time it was screened outside of Sundance. And I was just devastated by it. I'm from the South and just watching what was happening on that screen, people being judged, people being persecuted for their beliefs or just the way that they are. And I just saw so much of that when I was growing up. And so I just felt strongly that I wanted to help in some way. And I wrote to Damien and he wrote back. And that was the beginning of about 3000 letters back and forth. So Paradise Lost was specifically about this case. Yes, it was actually, it's unprecedented because it was the first case that I, I do believe that, I mean, I know cameras were in the courtroom before, but this was a documentary where they allowed unbelievable access to the victims, families, to, to the ones who was on trial, lawyers, it's one of those, it sort of kicked off the whole true crime explosion that's going on today. And also mm-hmm. online crowdsourced uh, investigation. S- investigation, support, and all of that. But what happened with the celebrities, so Eddie Vedder saw Paradise Lost, and he reached out to Damien's lawyer who didn't know who Eddie Vedder was. So he didn't respond for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So finally we got it, we got it fixed and Ed and, and Pearl Jam got involved in a, in a huge way. They, they did so much work on this case. It's unbelievable. Johnny Depp did the same. He heard, he heard from Ed and then he contacted me, Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh saw it down in New Zealand, contacted us through first just sending money, they came on board. So, I mean, literally just so much support and love came from many people, celebrities and non-celebrities and just people from around the world who wanted to help. And it was, I mean, it was, it was very exciting and sort of heady, but you're not thinking about that when you're in the middle of trying to save someone's life in the midst of all this, you know, just working on the case, but We're still very good friends with all of these people. And I am so eternally grateful to everyone, anyone who helped. And now if celebrity is good for anything. It's this. That's right. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. It's one of those powers that people are so suspicious of and that we tend to not see value in. But in this particular case, I would say it was pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. It was because not only did they support us financially and in a great way, but, you know, Johnny Depp did a 2020 show, you know, or 48 hours. That's mm-hmm. what it was to, for him to, to go out of his way to sit down for an interview for 48 hours. That's huge. I mean, he's very busy and he's got a lot going on, but he did that for us. And, and they all did. They, they put on concerts. So it wasn't just the money. They were involved, really involved. And I think that showed when they spoke out for us. They used their celebrity to shine a spotlight on the case. Yeah. And once again, that was the thing in large part that saved my life was the fact that more and more people were becoming aware of what was happening, mm. not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Yeah. And that was the only thing that the politicians cared about, that people were watching. Laurie, is this why you pivoted to being a producer? What inspi- <laughs> I mean, going from a yeah. landscape architect to that is really interesting to me. Is this what inspired all of that? Wanting to tell your story or being involved with people who are in the entertainment industry and seeing that as a possibility? Well, film has been my first love since I can remember. So I was one of, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'll, you know, I moved to New York City basically to see film because I had read The New Yorker since I was like 11, every film review, Pauline Kael wrote, I mean, it's just mm. love film. So the fact that film brought me to Damien, watching movies brought me to Damien, yes. And also I love to read. You know, story is so inspiring and helpful to me. And I think it is to a lot of people. And so when it came to making West of Memphis, which we were making with Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Amy Berg in order to literally do an investigation for the case and put it out to the world, they asked me to, to be a producer on it. And it was so amazing to work on that film. And so that led me to wanting to do another one. And now we're in the midst of we're going to actually tell this life story through a series. So we're very excited about that. Oh, that is exciting. That's a great way to reach more people too, because not everybody reads. Yes, (laughs) you're right. Right. (laughs) You got to meet the people where they are. Plus you love it. So, (laughs) wow. Okay. So I saw something on Instagram that it was, it was Damien saying that this might be his last book. You two wrote, is this your second book that you wrote together? It is. Our second together and my eighth book total. And this might be your last book. Is that because you're moving into this new filmmaking or? Well, I think it's just, I've kind of done this my whole life. Like whenever I immerse myself into something, I kind of exhaust the potential there, Mm. you know, kind of do what I want to do with it, say what I want to say with it. And then once I've exhausted that potential, you get to the point where you feel like you're just you know, kind of going over the same ground over and over. And I think if you do that too much, you start to stagnate. You know, I did it, for example, I did visual art for a while and I did shows like all over the world, you know, in all these different countries and galleries. And I really enjoyed it. But after a time period, I felt like, okay, I've said everything that I have to say through this vehicle. And if I keep doing this over and over, I'm just going to keep kind of repeating myself, doing what I've already done. Yeah. And and I think whenever you do that, 
it's better to let go of it, let go of it and, and kind of create a vacuum in your life. And that vacuum will get filled by whatever the next thing is that's going to cause you to grow and change and learn something else, you know, learn new information or learn new skills or, or whatever it is. So I kind of feel like in, and I won't say it's my last book period, because I've, I've actually been thinking about maybe even venturing into the realms of, of like graphic novels, uh, mm. talk about magic in that form. But I think it will be my last book on, you know, instructional magic. How like to do magic. Exactly. Yeah, I think it'll be my last book in that regard. And, and part of it is also, you know, I think there is nothing new to say about magic. I, I saw you say that. And I was like, well, that's an interesting thought. Well, I mean, basically what I'm doing, basically, even all the, when you're talking about like Aleister Crowley, when you're talking about the Golden Dawn, all of these people, all that they were doing was just updating what had already been done by previous people, you know, by Cornelius Agrippa, by Athanasius Kircher. The thing is, most people that are interested in magic aren't looking into those people, into those those areas, you know, how many people do you know that whenever they get interested in ceremonial magic, start looking through the life stories of a priest in the 15th century, mm. you know, most people are going to go to more modern stuff. So all of these techniques, all of this information, it's already out there if you know where to find it. So essentially what I've been trying to do writing about magic, what Crowley was trying to do writing about magic, even what the Golden Dawn was trying to do is make it accessible to more people. Because if you keep in mind, this stuff has always been kind of the domain of the elite in society, all the way back when you're talking about like in ancient Egypt or ancient Sumer, it was like the, the province of royalty and aristocracy. If you weren't connected to those bloodlines, you weren't going to know how to read, you weren't going to know how to write, and you were not going to have access to these rites and rituals. That carried on all the way down through history up until the Golden Dawn. You know, even in the late 1800s, early 1900s with the Golden Dawn, these are people, these weren't people who just held like nine to five jobs and raised kids. You know, you're talking about people like even Crowley that lived on an inheritance handed down to them from their, their family. They were kind of people of leisure who were able to travel the world and, and study what they wanted to without being confined the way so many people are now. And Crowley himself said that magic was supposed to be for the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, meaning anyone should have access to it. So kind of what modern day people in magic are doing, even if they don't realize it, is they're kind of just regurgitating stuff that's already out there, even if they don't realize they're doing it. But I think the good thing about, I don't think that's a detrimental thing. Like when I use the word regurgitating, I think they're doing it in a way like all I've tried to do is bring out things that people might not find on their own and describe them in a very simple way in a modern day vernacular so that you're not trying to decipher this archaic language and, and imagery and everything else. So in a lot of ways, you're just kind of reinventing the wheel. And I think there is use to that, but I feel like I've done it enough with my work that people who are really, really interested in this, they're at least going to have arrows now pointing them towards 
the original direction where they can go to get the source material. And it's like Dion Fortune said, the closer the source, the purer the stream. Mm. When people start to go back to the original sources that all of this material came from, they're getting it usually in a more purified form than the latter day stuff. And I realize that's a long winded answer. So I'm going to shut up. Well, I'm, you know, I want to tell everybody to go get your audiobook for High Magic because it's all there. It's so relatable. I was shocked by that. I have to say, because I am not a person who has gravitated towards ceremonial magic or high magic. I am very lowbrow, hippy dippy, basic witch. And <laughs> you speak lowbrow, hippy dippy, basic witch, but you're explaining these things that I think are archaic is a good word, like the language used. And there is just, a language barrier and it makes it seem like well this is for people that are just hardcore occultists who want to devote their life to it and I'm looking for practical magic I'm looking for ways to make my life better yes and you present it in that way which is so exciting when you're reading even things like the golden dawn you know Israel Regarde's book that people commonly refer to as the black brick just because it's as thick as a phone book you know this is like the source book that so much, so many traditions of modern magic, whether it's eclectic Wicca or whether it's hardcore ceremonial mat, whatever it is, you know, so many different traditions and people draw from the source. But when you, when, when most people who are new to magic pick up that book and open it for the first time, like one of the people that I learned from I thought he just he just described it in the perfect way. He said, when I first picked this book up and opened it, it was like trying to read an alien language. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was like for me. I would look through it and see all these diagrams of, uh, you know, dodecagrams and, and all of these strange geometric shapes and numbers and all of this archaic information. And I thought, well, what the hell does that have to do with magic? I'm looking for something that's exactly like you said. I want a way to improve my life. Mm-hmm. I want a way to change my reality. And I don't see how all of this convoluted philosophy and geometry and these rituals can accomplish that. What I tried to do in my work is always show people how to use this stuff that's first off, make, it, make them see that it's not as complicated as it seems. It's just written in a way that we don't talk anymore. It's really pretty simple once you get the basics of it down and you can use it no matter how convoluted and highbrow it seems, you can use it to change your everyday life in amazing ways. Yeah, I do think there's a certain amount of surrender that comes in if you try to practice something that feels beyond you, like your your grimoire, Ritual and Essential Grimoire. This is the new book. And from what I understand, it's kind of the instruction manual that follows up high magic. I feel like if you get some instructions, there is a surrender that happens if you're able to come at it and just say, okay, I'm just going to perform this. I don't have to understand it. I'm just going to let go and go through the motions and see what happens. I feel like you have a real talent for inviting people to explore that way. 
Lori's nodding her head, but what, <laughs> what, what you're describing is what Crowley called doing this work without the lust for results, mm. like, like really immersing yourself into it, coming to these practices, coming to this, this world with an open, receptive heart and being willing to learn, not coming in and, you know, thinking you understand already or thinking, you know, everything already, but coming to it without the lust for results and just being open to whatever arises and it enriches your life in amazing ways. But you're absolutely right. What we were trying to do, Lori and I both with ritual, it really is kind of like a follow-up to high magic in that we were wanting to show like high magic. Once again, you're going into, you know, these practices like the lesser banishing ritual, of the pentagram and the middle pillar and the Rose Cross and all these sorts of things. We wanted to show, okay, you know, those are the daily practices. That's like, that's like practicing meditation or practicing martial arts. With mm -hmm. ritual, we wanted to show, okay, now that you've got those practices down, here's how you take that out into the world and actually use it in practical, hardcore, easy to understand ways that we both do every single day. Wow. Lori, you said something somewhere. I don't remember where I've, I've read up a lot on you guys because I was excited to talk to you and intimidated. I'm like, I need to get my facts straight. <laughs> these, are some, these are some detailed lives. You know, you all have been through some shit. So I was like, I want to get this straight, but in my digging around, I saw you say something about how magic is prayer magic. Maybe you said is another word for a prayer. And I know you attribute prayer to being able to get Damien released from prison. So I'm very interested in this as an ex-Christian. What are you talking about, lady? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I was raised a fundamentalist Southern Baptist. So that's from where I draw some of not so much inspiration, but maybe and some inspiration, because as I was growing up, I rejected all of the mean stuff, but I love the prayer. And mm. just one example, when I was a kid, I had this dog named Sooner and he disappeared. And so I was maybe nine and I started, I just thought, oh, so this is what prayer's for. So I started praying and I didn't even know what I was doing back then. I started visualizing my dog barking below my window, up at my window to wake me up in the morning that he was back. So I just kept this up and, and literally a week went by and he was still gone. My dad's telling me, honey, he's probably not coming back. Two weeks went by and every day I kept up this visualization, this prayer. Three weeks went by and he appeared on the lawn under my window barking. No joke. Okay. This is magic. Yeah, that was magic. So to me, prayer became magic. And even though I lost it a little ways as I grew up and I, I moved away from the church and even moved away from, you know, my own spirituality, just not really practicing anything. When I came back to it, prayer once again became, you know, prayer is magic. It's ritual. It's, it's all of those things. So I just, that's what I see it as and how I talk about it. It's concentration, it's intention, and it's communication with the source of creation. Right. Yeah. You know, you did it in a magical way, though, that was not taught to me when I was a kid. You did it using visualization and probably feeling like the feeling sense was engaged. I did. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't even know what I was doing. I just knew that that's what I wanted. And the fact that, you know, years later, we, we all use those techniques to manifest, you know, health and, you know, abundance, whatever it is. It's like that. So for me, that was a pivotal point in my life to realize that we all are capable of doing this. Children are so magical. I feel like much much of magic is just remembering who we are. Exactly. Yep. I'm really interested in Damien being, you were in solitary confinement for 10 years. Is that right? Almost 10 years. But you had access to books. They would bring you books. Yeah. uh, The, the only books that you're allowed to have access to, I mean, in prison, the only books in the prison library are things that people have donated. So honestly, the only thing you're really going to see in there are like Louis L'Amour Westerns, or I always called them the housewife romances, the ones that have like <laughs> Fabio on the cover. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and, and half the time, those are even going to have pages torn out of them. You know, mm-hmm. they're missing chunks or whatever. But I was fortunate enough, and most people in prison are not this fortunate, but I had people, once again, on the outside world who cared about my well-being and who would send me books in, which contributed to my growth and understanding. You know, really, when I first arrived in prison, someone told me, he said, you can either sit in here and rot and go insane like the rest of these people, or you can turn your cell into a monastery and continue to learn and grow and change. That's why I asked. That exactly is why I asked. Yeah, that must have saved you too. I mean, these are complicated ideas. It is this archaic language, but you did have time on your side and solitude. So it's like maybe the hardest silver lining to find when you're in that situation, but I could see how that would really save you. Absolutely. And it's, you know, that leads into a couple of different things, but, but one of them, you know, going through all of that, like, don't get me wrong. It was horrible. It was horrendously hard. It was abusive. It was degrading. It was just degenerative in every way. It almost destroyed my body. It destroyed my mind destroyed my life in so many ways. But at the same time, you know, I always tell people that the word God stands for generate, order and destroy. Sometimes you have to destroy something before something new can be built. My old life and the person that I was had to undergo destruction in order for who I am now to be born, to be created. So when I look back in hindsight, even though it was horrendously difficult and and a nightmare going through it, I can look back in hindsight and know that those things did not happen to me. They happened for me, if not for undergoing all of that. And it really is the alchemical process. You know, when when you're doing alchemy, the first step of the process is to start taking something apart into its component elements. You know, there's an or there's a sense of destruction to that, whether you're doing it by fire and boiling it or, you know, using alcohol to kind of siphon the the life force out of the plant, whatever it is, alchemy always starts with an act of destruction, but it leads to the creation of something more potent and powerful than whatever the original form was. So whenever I look back now, I see that going through all of that truly was me being put through the alchemical process. And I think that that's what I always try to to kind of share with other people, too, is whenever we get in these horrible situations, we tend to focus only on the horror 
and the hardship of the situation. But if you can remind yourself, it's just like in the Bible, it's a, you know, a promise made by God. It says, I will give you beauty for ashes. If we can remind ourselves, even while we're going through this hardship, even if we don't see how, even if we don't see, you know, any way that something good is going to come from this, we have this promise from the source of creation, from divinity, that it is going to make this worth our while that it is going to give us something even more valuable than whatever it is we're losing. And that's what I always try to, you know, express to people because it shifts your focus and it keeps you from focusing entirely on what's happening to you, how horrible it is and allows you to see that, okay, something good is going to come from this. All it takes to keep you from being completely and utterly destroyed is that one thread of hope and light. Well, and what people don't understand is, yeah, it was hard for Damien in prison. That was everything he just said. But I think the more destructive wave came after he got out. Yeah. Because he suffered two nervous breakdowns. Our relationship was brought to its knees, not even to its knees. It was destroyed. Our finances were in ruin. We were suicidal in 2016 because it was just too much traveling and, and Damien severe complex PTSD. And I'm not a person who is in the least bit able to care for someone in that state, but neither one of us, it's like, we weren't even able to go to a doctor or to see anyone to help him. And then what eventually happened is that breakdown, that complete devastation and disintegration of ourselves, our relationship, everything around us, was the start of this book because what eventually happened is we just sort of moved off into separate parts of our apartment and started doing ritual to bring ourselves out of the ashes. And I, I, I still do many of these rituals to this day because they're so helpful in healing. Yeah. When you find what works, some of my favorite people are former addicts or spiritually reformed criminals or people who have been handed a terrifying diagnosis and they mm -hmm. find their way to that point of this happened for me and not to me. And when someone says that to you, when you're in the thick of it, you want to punch them in the face. It's so <laughs> offensive. <Yep. laughs> um, but I think most people experience pretty cushy lives and their suffering is different, but it's very real to them. It's almost like a manufactured suffering that can feel kind right. of lost. And it's interesting that way showers, which you two are, they go through these harrowing experiences. And I love the, I forget how you said it, Damien, but beauty from ashes. That mm. is such an image. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I really have found, and I think this is true, no matter what like spiritual tradition you're part of. I think it's true of anything from fundamentalism to ceremonial magic to witchcraft to whatever it is. I think if you keep your, someone once said to me, and I can't even remember who it was. They said, if you keep your focus on God's business, God will keep its focus on yours. And there's something about keeping ourselves trained and focused on something higher than the mundane, mediocre trash that surrounds us in this world that lifts us up in a lot of ways. 
And when I was in prison, that was one of the things that saved my life was the fact that I was so focused on magic that entire days would go by. And I didn't even think about the fact that I was in prison anymore. You know, I, I had kind of went into a whole other world where the external world was barely even registering. Magic gave me something that when I woke up in the morning, I was excited to jump up off of that concrete slab and get to work again. Whenever I walked out of prison, it shattered me. You know, we had just focused the whole time, the whole 20 years I'm in there, we were just looking at getting me out. Like we saw that as the finish line. Oh. If you reach that, then it's happily ever after. Hmm. We didn't realize when I walked out of prison, it was going to destroy me on levels that even going into prison didn't. You know, in so many different ways, I was not in any way, shape, form, or fashion equipped to come out into the world and, and people just expected me to know how to live. You yeah. know, keep in mind, yeah. I went into prison when I was 18 years old. I spent almost 20 years in there. So, you know, over half my life spent in prison. When I walked out those gates, I walked out into an entirely new world and it shattered me psychologically and emotionally to the point where I could not even do magic. When and I you landed out, in Manhattan of all places. <laughs> yes, I went from almost a decade of solitary confinement to the streets of Manhattan. Amazing. Overnight. When I was in prison, the day before I walked out, I was doing ritual work up to eight hours a day. The day after I walked out, I could no longer even do it for eight minutes because I had been so shattered that it, it was like starting over from scratch and having to go through physical rehabilitation to learn how to use a limb again. And I could not even start doing that until I had been out for years because I was having to figure out how to just live in the world like a normal person first. Yeah, it reminds me of a video I saw once of some chimpanzees that were lab animals. They lived in a lab their whole life and they were rescued and brought out in cages into the wild and they were terrified. They ran oh. back to their cage because... Yeah. They didn't know any better. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. And, but once again, I went back into that phase of, yes, it was incredibly destructive. Neither of us was even remotely prepared for what was about to happen to us, to our lives or anything else. But once again, looking back, I realized that if we would not have went through that, we would not be where we are right now. It's such a unique experience to share. Is that what kept you together? I, honestly, it, it's hard to describe. And this probably doesn't sound very psychologically or emotionally healthy, but it's what has worked for us and made us happy. Some people might even call this codependency, <laughs> but ultimately what it was is we came together at a time in our lives and we went through so many things together that shaped us as people that it was almost like two trees that have grown together as one tree. And you can't even cut them apart anymore. Or, you know, if you tried to cut them apart, it would end up killing both of them. Yeah. And, and I think that's a lot of what happened to us is we just grew together and, and not just, you know, psychologically and not just emotionally, but literally energetically, like our inner energy bodies, our auras, whatever you want to call it, fuse themselves together 
in a way that when one of us was strong and the other wasn't, then the one who wasn't strong at that particular time could draw on the strength of the one who was doing better. Mm. And I think that was a huge part of what saved us also. Do you ever resent the story? You know, (laughs) it's one of those things everybody's going to ask you about. And I thought about that before talking to you, like, do they even want to talk about this again? You know, it's just reliving something that was so traumatic and your life is so built around that. Even talking about magic, like this is how you learned magic is going through this horrible experience. Do you you ever just like want to be Damien and Lori floating in the Caribbean? (laughs) (laughs) I can't speak for Lori, but for myself, I did go through that stage. I think that was one of the things that was so psychologically destructive to me whenever I first got out was that people saw me as being synonymous with this case. Yeah. They didn't even see me as a person. They saw me as one of the West Memphis Three or that guy that used to be on death row or the guy from the documentary. And before that, you were the guy that murdered three kids. Exactly. It's so much projection. Yes, exactly. So it, it got to the point whenever I got out, especially, you know, when we were doing, you know, at the height of all of that stuff, like I, at one point I ended up doing 18 interviews in one day and wow. you reach a point where you're like, why did I even get <laughs> out of prison? If all I'm going to do is talk about it every minute of every day, right. like I'm still there. So I did go through that phase. And I think that was part of what broke me, but in a way that's a form of attachment. You know, when you're when you hate something like that or when you want to get away from something like that, you are just as attached to it as if you're holding on to it with everything you have. And the only thing that's ultimately going to free you is letting go of it so that it doesn't bother you if nobody asks you about it or if everybody asks you about it. If you're not attached to it, it's the same to you either way. And that's kind of the place that I had to arrive at and I had to go through that that fire to get there. It's the most incredible teaching platform. It has the potential to change lives. And that's a big burden, I think, in a sense, until you're (laughs) able to make peace with it. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing is I always tell people, you know, whether they're, they're following me on social media or whether they come to like some of the retreats we've done, or, you know, if they're on Patreon, whatever it is, I always say, look, I'm, I'm not your teacher. I'm not here to be your teacher. As a matter of fact, the thought of that is horrifying to me. I don't want that role put on me. I'm just a guy that's showing you, look, here's what I did. Here's how I did it. Here's how I found it. And here's what it helped me to survive and what it's taught me how to do. And I'm making a record of it and, and trying to preserve it and leave it behind for those who want to replicate it or duplicate it but I don't ever want to get put into that role of like being a teacher that I see kind of becoming so prevalent, especially in this field in the world today. Mm. Lori, I'm curious, why, why did you run into the fire? And, you know, the contrast between all this privilege, like you were having a fantastic life. I was. (laughs) What in the world? Lady, I have respect for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Joanna. I really appreciate that. Do you even know what compelled you or is it a mystery to you? I I really don't. I don't. I just know that once 
I saw Damien and heard him and, and I felt this, I mean, it was just so many emotions, of course, on that night when I saw the film and then a very strong inclination that they were innocent. I hadn't done any research yet, of course, but I just felt this overwhelming desire to contact him. And it wasn't like I saw him on screen and fell in love with them. You know, that, of course, I mean, he was in one of the worst situations anyone could be in. He was, you know, an 18 year old and I was, you know, older and I just, but I felt this very, I felt a tie to him and I don't, I have no idea why. And after that initial letter, then it just became sort of autopilot. I just kept moving to the next thing, the next thing as it appeared. I just kept following my instincts and sometimes, you know, and of course it got emotional because writing to him and realizing after a few months that I was falling in love with him, you know, everything just became very, very focused and I just let it lead me. Well, speaking of the burden of projection, that's something you two have in common because people must have projected so much onto you. Oh, God. well, Absolutely. I kept it secret for four years. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't even tell my family. Mm-hmm. I told two of my closest friends, but I moved down to Arkansas. No one knew what I was doing. It wasn't until I had to actually start working on the case that my appearance people started to know who I was and what I was doing. I I tried to keep it secret because number one, I'm just that kind of a person. I'm very private and I I don't like people knowing what I'm doing. And secondly, I knew all of the ridicule and I knew all of the judgment that was going to, and it did. I mean, I've had people turn their backs on me, (laughs) you know, all kinds of things. But after a while, I just decided I'm only going to deal with the people who you know, respect what we're doing here and respect Damien and me and everyone else can just sort of fall away. It doesn't matter. You know, I think also kind of what she's describing when she was talking about first seeing the documentaries and just this sense of resonance, you know, it kind of ties in also to the realizations or the epiphanies that magic is supposed to lead you to. One of them being that most people in the modern world, you know, I don't know how to say this other than just to say that they don't really understand anymore what love is. Like we think that love is an emotion, but according to the spiritual traditions, whether you're talking about ceremonial magic or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever it is, they say that love is not an emotion. What true love really is, is looking at another And knowing to the core of your being that you are one, that you are the same consciousness, that there is no division between you. You are the same thing, even if you are in two separate bodies. Emotion might arise from that, might be the byproduct from that. But I think for whatever reason, when we first met, both of us kind of experienced that. You know, I knew from the very first letter that I ever opened from Lori, that this was someone unlike any other person I'd ever known before in my life. I felt like a shockwave go through me. And that is the only way that I can describe that is at that moment in the beginning, for whatever reason that we were blessed and cursed with, Mm -hmm. we experienced the divine meaning of love. 
we realize that this other person is an extension or a part of me. Also, just taking that a bit further, we did experience all of the crazy stuff that people do when they first fall in love, mm-hmm. that the lust going, literally you go insane. <laughs> you, <just laughs> <laughs> you want to be with that person. And, and, you know, and the fact that we were separated just generated more heat. It was just this. Oh constant. my gosh. And this poor 18 year old guy. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. You're like at the height of your sexual power. Life in the room. <laughs> so yeah, for a few years, that craziness went on. And then of course we went through the, the period, period of fighting with each other. So what we have done, and Damien was talking about alchemy before, the love we have for each other, that also has gone through that alchemical process. And I just want to say to anyone out there who is in a relationship with someone and you hit a rough spot, as long as there's no abuse and that everyone is healthy and you know, you do come upon times when you have conflict and you don't think you can work through it. If you have great love for this person and you want to stay with them, I can't tell you how important it is to work through it because the phase that comes after is so much better than any of that stuff in the beginning. It's not going to be like a fairy tale. (laughs) You're never going to fight and there's going to be a happy ever after. You're going to fight. You're going to go through hard times and you just have to work your way through it. But I think the two of us getting through that, those really difficult years of trauma, when we really did hate each other. I mean, we hated each other with a passion. I think it was because we looked at each other as the one who was hurting. We were hurting each other. I can't tell you how much I've changed. I am so grateful for all of those years and everything I've been through because I don't think I was a very nice person. (laughs) I just, I think all of everything I put into this case made me hard Johnny Depp once called me a panzer tank. That's not what a, is that? That's a German World World War II tank. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think you equate that with nice. <laughs> mm. But I had to work, I had to break all of that up. And, and literally my body had become like armor. It was I had a massage therapist tell me she was worried because all the muscles around my heart were so hardened that she was concerned that I, so anyway, it it just, all of that fighting, all of that war, being a warrior, it, it turned me into something I wasn't happy with at the end of it all. So I had to do a, a lot of work on myself to get to this point. What were the physical manifestations, if you don't mind, but of PTSD and do you feel either of you that you have a handle on that or is it something that you have to manage daily? That's a difficult question. But a good one. Yeah. I I think for me, we did a lot of stuff that people traditionally do whenever they're dealing with things like that. And I, you know, it works for some people. I don't poo poo it at all. I don't discourage anyone, but things like, for example, going to therapy or stuff like that. Some of that stuff works wonders for people. But honestly, for me, the thing that I relied on over and over and over to bring me through the darkest times, the hardest times, the broken times, it was always magic. Magic is the thing that has saved my physical health, my mental health, my emotional health over and over and over. It was the only thing I had to rely on inside the prison walls. You know, if I got sick, I didn't have a doctor to go to. 
If I was experiencing abuse of some sort, I didn't have a therapist to go talk to. All I had was magic. So it kind of taught me to get a lot more out of it, you know, to delve deeper into it than most people would ever be forced to do. But honestly, that was kind of what started the healing process was finally getting a handle enough where we were able to start doing magic again. Well, and to answer your question more specifically, something that really changed my understanding of what Damien was going through, it had been maybe two months after he had gotten out, he came in to me one day and he had been to the bank and he didn't understand how to do anything. And so he came back and he was just destroyed. And then he explained to me what was happening to him. He said that every day he would be walking down the streets of Manhattan and say someone would just do something like step in front of him. He would be hit with adrenaline, like a surge of adrenaline. He likened it to driving down an icy road and your car starts spinning and you hit the guardrail. That much adrenaline, 60 to 70 times a day. Mm. Everything was fearful, you know, things he didn't understand. And so when I learned that, fast forward five years later, we met a neurologist who explained it to us. And what she said was, he was a person who as a child went into prison, his brain wasn't formed. So when his brain did form, it literally just formed in a couple of tracks, fight or flight. And then it was all about um, survival. survival as opposed to learning about color and sound and music, hearing people's voices. He didn't hear any of that. He only saw white fight or flight. And luckily Damien was able to read and do other things, but you're talking about a very limited you know, what his brain was capable of doing. And so he gets out, walks onto the streets of Manhattan, and it's like a log jam. You've got so much information coming in that his brain did not know what to do with. It didn't even know what it was, didn't know where to put it. And we also learned that that creates great nausea in a person. And so I didn't understand. We'd be walking down the street and Damien would just literally just sit down on the curb. And I'd be, what's going on? He's like, I just can't go anymore. I'm sorry. You know, it's like the nausea. (laughs) So I'm sorry. Um, But, and that just kept escalating. It would be, you know, more symptoms came on and more symptoms to the point where literally, like I just said, you know, nervous breakdown Yeah. and in the bed for three weeks. It's constant adrenaline surges, constant confusion. And, you know, when you hear about things like a nervous breakdown, we think of it as being a psychological thing, but it takes a tremendous toll on you physically and emotionally as well. So thank you for asking that question, because it's one of the most important, I think, teachings to humans, because we don't know what to do with pain and trauma. We don't know how to heal from it. And, and that's also one of the things we want to do in telling this story is to explain that because there's so much, I mean, right now, especially in the world, so many people are suffering from complex trauma and they don't know what to do about it. I have it myself. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, what's fascinating to me about your story is magic because ceremonial magic, the lesser banishing ritual, these things, what helped heal me was humming and Mm -hmm. movement 
and body mm-hmm. postures. And then to realize this wisdom has been with us for thousands of years. And now we understand it through science, but this is wisdom that's been with us for so long. It's not a head thing. It's a body no. thing. It's a nervous yeah. system. It's your limbic yeah. system. Yeah. And that I think explains in some part why the magic was so impactful. Yes. And I also think that doing something repeatedly, like you were saying before, even if you're doing a ritual and you don't understand it, you just do it. Eventually your body's going to understand it. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your mind's going to understand it. And that's something in my practice, it's just doing these ritual. And I find us over time, I build upon them. So they sometimes become these like big extravagant rituals but that's, that's how it's been working for me is just building upon ritual that has healed. And then you just keep building on it. Do you feel a click? Like, yes, I am not well, I'm doing this ritual. And all of a sudden it's, I'm like clicked in. Do you get that experience? I do. Yes. And yeah, that's, that's a, that's such a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've just patched together. Like I'm, I just have kind of a magpie my own little magpie tradition, but if something works, I hang on to it. I'm the same way I do this. And I also feel I'm led to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and what you said too, about it being, you know, connected to the nervous system, you know, that's one of the, like the ultimate kind of secrets, I guess, of magic is that all of this stuff is ultimately about your nervous system. I mean, that's what the tree of life is. The tree of life is your nervous system. Your spine is the trunk. Connections that form in your brain are the leaves and the the branches, the parts that go all the way down into your subconscious, your unconscious, your reproductive system. That's the roots. But all of this stuff is tied into your nervous system, ultimately. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I know we're running out of time, but I cannot have you here without asking you about God which is a special interest of mine because Mm. you use the word God and God is a very offensive word to people who come from fundamentalist religion in particular. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if you have kind of a working definition of what that is, or if it's just this great mystery that you can tap into. I'll go first, just because God for me, is literally, and you know, when you start talking about these things, sometimes your words get, but anyway, anyway, I'm just going to say it's literally the force of everything. And it's an energetic field that is from where everything comes. And so I don't think of it as a big man in the sky or anything like that. I'll sometimes refer to it as father, mother, but that is, it's the source from where we all come. But I also just feel it's inside me that God resides inside me always. And I can always call upon it for wisdom, guidance, joy, love, all of those things. It's always there, but it's also in all of us around us. It's everything we're in it and it's in us. Exactly. Yeah. And I I guess for me, the word God is more like a, you know, a literary convenience, you know, just a label you can use to kind of indicate, at least point the finger towards something else. The way I always try to describe to people whenever I'm doing classes or something is like when we say, for example, God created the world in ceremonial magic, 
we don't mean the same thing people mean when they say that in religion. Like in religion, when you say God created the world, people have this idea of like this man in the sky who forms something almost like an artist, you know, a painter who creates a painting or a sculptor who creates a sculpture. And at the end of the creation process, they step back and the artist is one thing and the creation is another thing. They're two separate things. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about in magic, when we say God created the world, you're talking about a infinite source of consciousness and energy. And anything that is infinite exists outside the boundaries and borders of time and space. It has no qualities. It has no characteristics. It cannot experience change. Change only happens within the boundaries of time and space. So this infinite source of consciousness and energy wants to experience change. In order to do that, it has to pour itself into the dimensions of time and space. That means God didn't create the world like an artist. God became the world and everything in it, including us. We are God. We are the source of creation experiencing itself in millions or billions of different forms simultaneously for the purposes of change, growth, and experience. Preach it. <laughs> Brother Eccles. <laughs> That's why I went first, Joanna. <laughs> I believe that. I thoroughly believe everything you just said. And I've had a long road of making peace with God. And that feels true to me. <laughs> okay. So you two are wonderful. I want people to be able to find you to buy your book, but also how can they help? What can they do right now? to help with this case? The number one thing that comes to the top of my mind is they could go to my website, damianecles.com or .org? .com. .com, and sign up for the newsletter because everything that happens whenever we're going to court, where it's going to be at, we're going to put all of that in newsletters to keep people updated so that, you know, we're asking if you're in the vicinity, if you can come and actually be in the courtroom and support us, because like we said, the only thing they care about is knowing the rest of the world is watching. Right. So if you can come, please come, but we're going to keep people updated through newsletters that they can sign up for through DamianEccles.com. I don't do Facebook. Lori doesn't really do much social media at all, but I do keep people updated on Twitter and Instagram, both of which are just my name, just at Damian Eccles. Mm -hmm. Can you think of anything else? Yes. If you can just look, you'll have to find their addresses. We'll put them on the website, actually. Write to the governor of Arkansas, yeah. to the prosecuting attorney. We'll, we'll put all the, the addresses on the, the attorney general so that they know that people are watching and people are waiting for them to do the right thing. And just express to them that you want to see justice done in this case. Mm -hmm. Power to the people. Yes. from the people from the people i think yes. people underestimate how much power we have together i think so yes. too and i also think that people have grown tired of all of the abuse and the injustices that are going on i mean we see it in ukraine right now and we're going to ride that wave absolutely yeah and you're going to set a precedent yes that other people can point to in the future and say look this because I know you're going to be victorious. Everything has worked out. 
Thank you. To this point, and it's going to continue to do so. Something is guiding this process and <laughs> the magic must be helping it along, but I truly think there's something bigger at play here. And yeah. You yep. two are badasses for, for <laughs> you are, you're wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This is really fun. Okay. So everybody also go out and get ritual an essential grimoire. Thank yes. you. Yes. So that was very definitely a highlight of my podcasting career. How did you like it? Hit me up on social media and let me know how you liked it. I'm on Instagram now, again, I don't know what I think about that. I'm also on Twitter, which I love. Elon Musk just bought Twitter this morning. <laughs> so now I don't know what I think about that. But you know, social media, what are you going to do? You want to be social, right? If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends on social media. And I think they've been deleting things from social media, but Damien does have an Instagram account and a Twitter account. I'm linking to those from the show notes as well as their website, which is where you probably should go for all the things. And of course, there will be a link to their new book, Ritual. And if you're loving this new direction, I'm taking the podcast and you want to support, please consider joining me over on Patreon. You can do so for as little as $3 a month. I create lots of content over there and there is such a cool, kind, wonderful community over there. I love them to pieces. I love you all for tuning in and listening to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And always remember... Let's say it together. Say it with me now. Life is change. Change is magic. Magic is life. And the journey is the creation. Until we meet again, much love to you. Peace.